And we are live for real this time with our 91st <laughs> episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. That was hey, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was almost as good as the, the host we had last week, right? You know. I don't know. We we may talk about Minecraft. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure yet today. But actually, uh, I did set up my joined... computer to to do Minecraft modding oh. this weekend because he oh, and I are now okay, going to be sweet. building Minecraft mods together. So good, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, today we're joined by Stefan. Uh, if you don't know Stefan, you haven't been listening to the podcast, but you know. I've got Google ready so that we can Google all the terms that he comes up with today. Or wait, wait, no, it doesn't come up with, that he uses. I should come up with terms. Uh, that would be much more fun. We should come up with terms. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, people wouldn't really know, right? They'd still go Google it. We could we could stand up a wiki page really quick. <laughs> um, I'm 100% certain and we're going to talk about there. What? No one would know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's going it's going great today guys it's going great i was i, I was telling the, the guys before that it's just been like it's been one of the hot mess days for me so but we're here we've made it <laughs> um there, there's a couple of announcements uh ken and i will be on uh running our secure code review course at OWASP virtual appsec days uh if you're interested in that it's it's a little bit of a compressed format uh because it will be um, two days, four hours each day. I think we're going to have to assign a lot of homework for the labs rather than doing them in person. Uh, but at the same time, we will cover the whole framework. Um, you know, we've gotten it, gotten through it before in about two hours, but with you know basically just a brain dump. So it should be a good back and forth. We should have a lot to go over. Uh, there's also a bunch of other conference or other trainings that are going on for virtual appsec days. Um, outside of that, uh, the course is still available. I mean, as of right now, Black Hat is still going on. So we are teaching the Black Hat version of Secure Code Review. Um, what next level bug hunting code edition, I guess is what we're calling it. Uh, so please, uh, if you're interested, if you're going to be there, uh, please consider us. Uh, if it if it goes on, that's going to be the big question right now is, you know, what's going to happen late summer as far as all these conferences go. So um, I think that's it for announcements. Ken, Ken, do you have anything else? Uh, no, <laughs> and that's the short answer. No, not really. No, <laughs> I think you covered it all. <laughs> Other than I'm excited to have Stefan on again because it's been a long. Yeah. Honestly, it's been a long time since we even like chatted via this video conferencing system setup. So I'm not, you know, not Slack typing chats. Yeah, or text. <laughs> or text. Yeah. So it's nice to have the video like face to face, especially when you're, you have no social contact because <laughs> you're being socially distant. Yes. No, yeah. yeah. Nice I, I really think Stefan, Stefan still wins the award for most times coming on the podcast too. I'm, um, I'm so sorry, folks. We can't get rid of you for some reason. I don't know what's going on. You keep coming back on. You have interesting things to talk about. So usually yeah. we're always lucky when we get to pick the mind of Stefan. So that's why we keep bringing yes. you back. Yes. 
So I, I think there's a few topics that we wanted to cover with you. Um, I mean, specifically, you're at Trail of Bits. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, the big one was the votes stuff that went on. And I know you were involved with that. Um, seems like whenever we've got something fun in the news, uh, Stefan's involved in uh, Wait. Know, in some way. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not qualifying whether it's good or bad or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you had to do with COVID-19 or whatever, right? You know, <laughs> I, 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 no comment. No, I, I, votes was a super interesting assessment, right? We, we have done a few uh, like voting applications, right? There's, there's a lot of interesting uh, work in that space. A lot of people are trying to work in that space and it's, it's obviously a very difficult space, right? It's, it's one that is, uh, it's for municipalities and for for governments, and um, you know it's it's not something that you make a ton of money on. So there's it's not yeah. like you're going to make a ton of money from from this sort of thing, and and everything will be great. Um, it's so it's a difficult space to to work in, and it also obviously has national security implications always. So it's like low paying <laughs> for for municipalities, and it has natsec. Uh, or, or election uh, sec implications. So it, it was a votes was a fun assessment. Vote, votes was very interesting. So when you say low paying, what do you mean by that? Like, well, it's it's not like like think about I don't know any any other sector that you can work in, right? Like if you're if you're working in in healthcare, you can go for the big wealthy hospitals for for your software or for your hardware. You can get really good volume. That sort of thing. Whereas if you're working in election security, it's like municipalities don't have a ton of money. So you you have to work within their budgets. And government does not have a ton of money that they're throwing at election security research right now. Right. Okay. So it's right. like if you want to innovate in the space, it's it's a difficult space to innovate in because it's it's highly regulated. There's not a ton of money behind it. And there's also not a lot of like standards that you can lean on for things. So it's it's a difficult space to work in. I I, I am always impressed that people choose to go into election like in, into developing election applications and and election hardware and that sort of thing. So I guess with COVID, which is, which is, it'll maybe become more of a priority. I don't know. Yeah, I, I know it was interesting because I I remember there was a rush to like create the election machines back in the day. I, I mean, I remember looking at the first deep old ones that came out there. Where, I mean, again, those were a huge pile of garbage, but from a security perspective, but I know they made a ton of money off of it because everybody, I mean, the, it was all government funded. Like, uh, mm -hmm. hey, there's, a, there's millions and millions of dollars for every county to go electronic. And so Diebold went and got that money and then they basically walked away, right? Like there wasn't a lot of, incentive to keep developing because the money had dried up. I, I think that's what you're trying to say, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's this weird bust and boom cycle as far as what sort of attention it gets. Well, so. internet, internet enabled voting is even more difficult, right? Because if you look at, if you look at like miss documentation on electronic voting, um, their, their feedback is we do not recommend in any way, shape or form a system by which you can vote over the internet. Period. Mm -hmm. No, no. <laughs> there's no question. Now they've done studies on it. There, there's things like NIST IR seventy seven eleven. I can put point a link in here. But they've they've done studies on these sorts of things. But 
the the guidance from government currently is there's no there's no mechanism by which we can recommend you like if you do these set of security controls you can do uh, you know secure login from government there's there's those sorts of policies internet connected voting is not the same so folks who are working in this space really have to try quite a few different things to to actually get uh, to get where they're going mm -hmm. so it, it's hard it's a hard space I'll, I'll pull up that link for you as well yeah well and that, that... I mean that's that's always it, right? Like I, I that's got to be the interesting thing with votes because it wasn't like that was the it, it's been used so far in primaries, right? Which are basically run by the different parties. They're not necessarily run by the you know the election commissions, right? The county election offices or whatever. So how does that actually like at you know compare? How do they get around that? Um, the fact that NIST is saying don't do this at all. Right? They're well, just they're implementing blockchain and it's all good. That's right, you know. Yeah. Um, so so votes votes was in an interesting it was an interesting space, right? They they are working on um, they they do not try to go for uh, anonymous ballots, right? Okay. So the way that vo votes is meant to be a replacement for mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. So, so their protection, their protection threshold is much lower because they're, they're trying to iterate in the space for folks who are uh, like people with, with uh, special access needs or overseas voters or military voters, those sorts of things. So um, their, their system worked in a way that was akin to having mail-in ballots. That that's what they were going to. So they were aiming at the like the mail-in ballot space. Whereas we we've worked with other systems and applications that did remote marking, but they also were attempting to be completely private voting as well. So basically, no connection between the end user or, or no uh, no explicit connection. There were usually connections that we've seen in these applications. Votes had other issues, but um, you know. Systems systems that are trying to do remote marking and be private have different set of concerns than what votes did, which was remote marking, but also meant for for mail in ballots. If does that make sense? No, it does. It does. I like we had this discussion last week uh, a little bit because we, I mean, we were just kind of talking about votes, the fact that it was there, and the different assessments that had gone on, kind of the timeline. I know you can you can provide detail on that, but that was one of the things that came up was how it compared to. Uh, mail-in ballots, right? And the fact that kind of those same insecurities that exist in a in a voting application exist in mail-in ballots, but the scale is a lot smaller, right? Like right. it's a lot more difficult to steal paper ballots and to go to every house and do that as opposed to, hey, online, I, you know, I find IDOR or insecure direct object reference somewhere and I can fill out ballots for 200,000 people and do ballot stuffing, right? That's, right. that's, a, that's a much easier and a much more cost efficient attack than trying to do it in a in the physical world. So I I so yes it does make sense I guess is what I'm trying to say. So yeah there's it's it's hard too because you have states I believe like Oregon that that are actually 100% mail in ballot currently. So you have states that are already there. Um, oh yeah yeah I I I I live in Utah that's that's how right I mean, they, they allow it and that's the preferred method now too, right? I, and as a voter, it makes it way easier, right? Like, I'm just like, oh, I just have to fill this out. I can either send it back in and just drop it off and we're good. Um, 
so it, it's coming and that that's the that's the question. I mean, you you guys obviously found a few issues with votes, <laughs> a few. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, do you, it, Mist is recommending that it's not even an option. I feel like we're still going that direction. I I don't feel like we're ever going to get away from this. So, what is you know, what's your take on how that's going to play out? Well, so Mist has a very nuanced approach. Uh, NIST says, like, so for example, if you look through some of the, the reporting there, or if you look through NIST's uh, electronic security voting standards, they'll say things like uh, accessible voting cannot include um, screen readers, because screen readers basically, uh, if you're at an election site and you use a screen reader, literally everyone can see who you, like, or see what you're voting on, or hear what you're voting on, I should say, and, and potentially hear who you voted for. So NIST is like, you cannot do accessible voting with, with screen readers. However, if you were going to do accessible voting with screen readers, these are the sorts of things that we would expect you to look for. So, okay. so the, the, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a hard space, again, because you, you look at like NIST standards or you look at other, other groups who have done it, um, like you have Swiss Post. Swiss, Swiss Post tried to do this like very fancy ZK snark, like zero knowledge proof system and uh, it, it completely came unraveled because they, there was an issue with zero knowledge proofs that they were using. So uh, at, the, at the simple end with things, uh, it, it's extremely difficult. And at the high end where you're doing like all sorts of fancy zero knowledge proofs and all sorts of fancy math, uh, people still screw that up as well. So it's, it's a hard space, you know? Unfortunately, it's kind of like uh, working in medical devices, right? Like if you make a medical device, it's not like, Oops, I'm going to push a patch for that because I stopped your heart. Um, you have to get it right, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, these sorts of design reviews, these sorts of security reviews and whatnot uh, are, are probably the best you can do unless you have full formal proofs. And even then, that can be completely wrong, like what happened with, with Swiss Post. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I like on, on the one hand, I feel. I, I mean, I still think it's coming, right? Like, okay, so NIST is nuanced. Uh, they're saying no, but if, right? Like, here, here, here's a list of things that you need to think about, which, I mean, honestly, that feels like any security architect anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's always the answer. No, but if you do X, Y, and Z, then uh, all right, we'll accept the risk and move on, right? Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a panacea. I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. Um, I, how did, I mean, so to go back to the votes thing, right. Mm -hmm. And you guys stepped in, um, you did your assessments. Um, what was the response from like votes on the, the items that you guys kicked across as opposed to the, you know, <laughs> the MIT researchers and everything else that went on? I think, I think votes is in a, an iterated, a, a, in a space where they're iterating very quickly and they're trying to, they're trying to uh, handle a number of things uh, quickly and without some of the processes that you would expect in place from, from more mature organizations. So like okay. risk management frameworks, assessment management frameworks, those sorts of things. Um, you, if you look through the threat model, that was actually one of the findings that we had there was that there, there was effectively a dearth of, of information security policy. Um, okay. So I think 
I think what we saw with some of the MIT researchers and whatnot are that it was a very binary approach. If we see something that's out of scope or we feel is out of scope, our response is to escalate it. And I, I, I think it was, it was more of an immature process there. Um, whereas when they had a partner organization who brought them in and uh, who we had, like I had weekly meetings with, with uh, the votes team several times a week uh, to discuss what we were doing, what we were finding, how we're seeing it, explain that we're trying to make things better for them, et cetera. Um, I think it was a, a, like a lot more, uh, a, a lot more easy for them to consume and understand yeah. this wasn't this wasn't a uh, like a, a reputational risk or something there. We we actually could help them become better. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I, I don't know. It, you know, in the industry in general, we get a lot of those knee-jerk reactions, right? Like, uh, I mean, hell, we haven't talked about Zoom yet. I'm sure that'll be, you know, a topic at some point today. Um, but that's that's sort of what goes on is a researcher, you know, makes contact or whatever. Like, the guys on the other side are like, oh, crap, we're being attacked when right. it's they're really trying to improve things. There's, a, there's miscommunications. Somebody goes on Twitter, it gets like retweeted across the industry and all of a sudden, you know, votes is the worst thing ever or Zoom is the worst thing ever, even though realistically it's, uh, you know, they're, everybody's trying to do their best, right? Yeah, and, and the reports are live, by the way, for votes. I'm, I'm linking them in, in chat right now. Um, but the Sweet. both the threat model and the security review are completely live. You can look through... Uh, you can look through and see. Obviously, you'll you'll notice that they are redacted. There are certain things that we've removed from the the public reports. Um, however, the the findings and and what we actually saw in the assessment are are all there. So, and they're they're quite large reports. Um, if you look at the threat model, you may see like, well, there's only you know 31 findings or something like that. Um, they, <laughs> well, only 31 findings or something. Okay, yeah. You know, well, it, you know, if you're if you're looking at if you're looking at a threat model and you're like, well, 31 findings, but the, the findings tend to be a lot more, um, they, they tend to be a lot more comprehensive. So for example, like I didn't add a finding for each missing information security policy. It was like, hey, of the six information security policies that you handed us, I think all six are, uh, could, could, like, could have some improvement areas. And so uh, here's a bunch of recommendations <laughs> in one yeah. finding to, to handle these sorts of things, you know? Um, so it was, it, we tried to pack as much into, into single findings rather than like, oh, we have six information security policy findings. We have six architectural findings. We have six cryptographic findings. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. We tried to, you know, it's, in things. <clears throat> it's interesting with your security properties and questions. It's almost like you have a uh, upfront, um, risk assessment slash threat model of the different components of the, of what comprise this application. And then your reports kind of based off of like, here's the risks that we kind of were concerned about per component. We went and checked it. I mean, that's what it looks like anyways, in your first initial like security properties and questions bit. So in the security review, uh, Evan Sultanik, who's, uh, who, who works in our assurance department, he also works in our research department. Uh, he went through and extracted a list of properties from the MIT report and then from, from our previous work in, in some other election systems to come up with like a set of, I don't want to say invariants, but effectively invariants that we would expect to hold for an election system uh, with regard to security there. 
So we went through some of the previous literature, we went through some of our previous reports, and we went through the general questions that we had and, and came up with a list of properties that we wanted to like basically interrogate the system about. And at Trail of Bits, that's the general direction we're moving towards is away from like, hey, let's, as Dan likes to say, reach into your code base and pull out a bunch of bugs. We want to have a, like a bunch of properties that we're attempting to assess your application for, and then also reach into your code base and pull out a bunch of bugs. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. No, I, that. I think that's like a super effective methodology. That's actually something that Seth and I talk about um, when we train people. It's like that. It's funny. It's a similar type of approach where you're like, yeah, where you're basically, you're not just like, where, where, what it sounds like you're saying, if I'm rephrasing this correctly, mm -hmm. is you're not just trying to go through like clearly like the OWASP top 10 or something like that and just go through the code and look for those findings. Mm -hmm. You're looking at specifically what are the like business properties of this? What are the components that make up the system that's, you know, for this business purpose? Then here are standards that this must follow using like several pl places to like decide what your security goals are and then doing your assessment centered on those things is what it seems like. And that seems like if that's correct, what I'm saying, then like that, that's a system and that's a good system. It's a, an actual methodology. It's not like just trying to like grep or use code scanners or whatever, you know, dynamic, whatever, like to, yeah, to pull out a wasp top 10 kind of findings. Yeah. Um, I I think there's value in doing that sort of like simple static analysis on things too, right? Developers still miss that. And, and Seth and I have had this conversation like a billion times that there's a gradation of, of systems that you wanna walk through. Um, but property extraction and testing with things like property testers, fuzzers, that sort of thing, uh, it's, it's really helpful to guide your assessment and then also understand like, well, this is what we assume works within your application and this is how we assume it works based on our understanding, based on what we've seen. And then uh, this is what we tested. And, and sometimes we've had developers go back and like, no, no, that's an assumption we, we assume is safe or it's safe because of some other control that you don't have access to. And then we just mark it off that way. I'm actually posting a link to another report we did for OX. Uh, it was one of the first ones that we did uh, property testing in an extreme form, like come up with all of the properties that we expected to hold from, from an assessment and then test them with uh, with echidna or manual uh, manual testing, that sort of thing. So, this is almost like creating security stories. Yeah. yeah. Basically yeah. the same thing. But Which it, it, it's interesting how we've kind of fallen into that, right, Ken? I, like, I, I think back to the days of Fishnet and like we had like a list of, well, this is what you must test, like a checklist of yeah. this must be tested for every app. And I can't remember the number of times that going through that list like during the test and just marking NA, 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 NA. I'm like, oh, there's got, I mean, I think we've, we've all migrated to, hey, guess what? Up front, we kind of do this scoping to what's prioritized and what time I actually have, right? What's important yeah, I mean, that with was, this application? What are the properties that exist? Yeah. At least they did try to like standardize it. Like it was not nearly perfect, obviously, but these are the early days. These are the early days of, of, anyone even creating systems to like and methodologies and approaches. And it was completely garbage in the sense that compared to now, sorry, I, I don't want to like come off because actually they did a great, I feel like they did a great job in getting like in terms of 
consulting, not only like systemizing um, kickoff calls and methodologies towards assessments and uh, even our finding, having like a findings database. It was like one of the, you know, early, there was a database of findings and like, I say this because it's like, it was a SharePoint site or something like that. I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's some data there. So anyways, like, um, but they did a lot of like early pioneering that is very rough con- uh, in nowadays standards. And this is only like 11 years ago or 10 years ago, but it's very rough compared to now. And now it's like totally different, you know, focused on like you're saying more like business logic of the application rather than just like a, a whatever checklist. And I, I mean, to that point kind of wandering all over the place but you know it's our podcast whatever um like <laughs> the like the section like in that ox report right that you're, you're bringing up the fact that you've got like engagement goals in there as far as this is what we're trying to answer and i think that's what you're talking about about protocols as well is like hey uh like we looked at the application first we did our own little like assessment of what's important and this is what we're going after. We talk to the developers, we talk to the business people, and this is what we're trying to answer. We're not taking the OWASP top 10 and then just willy-nilly applying it. That's gonna be covered in these questions that I'm asking, Uh, but asking those questions gives you a more holistic view of, all right, what are the threats of this application? What is it that we're really trying to tell you in this report? like th- that's a takeaway that I still don't see in a lot of reports, though, uh, coming out of consultancies is outside of this is the scope, right? This is the endpoint, and these are the users that I use to you know attack the application, um, or this is the code base. They don't necessarily talk about those goals and that that level of detail. And I think it would, I would like to see more of that, right? Because mm-hmm. I know that's going on. Somebody's doing that analysis, but I'd like to see more of it. Well, it takes time, right? Like yeah. threat modeling takes time, risk assessment takes time, understanding user intent takes time. And uh, I think also too, not every consultancy can can A, spend that time, but B, also is given that time by the customer. Um, you know, yeah. trail a bit very frequently, we have longer engagements than I've ever had before, right? So... It's yeah, sign, sign me up for that, dude. <laughs> look, like, but here's why. I mean, look at this stuff. Like, in the side of that um, protocol PDF, the uh, you've got like the Cobb. I've been googling this stuff. The Cobb Douglas function, which is like, okay, so you got rounding division errors in the Cobb uh, Douglas function next to it, and I'm like sitting here, you know, googling that. And so this is this is truly very specific to the the business properties of this. Um, protocol that you're performing a security assessment on. It's actually pretty like nuts how specific you guys have to get into. Yeah. Like how granular getting into what that actually does. Um, man, this is crazy. That's an awesome report. So definitely read this. Yeah. Uh, we have, we have folks who are like Gustavo who, who led that project is a uh, like PhD computer scientist. We have, uh, I think Michael Colburn was on there too. He, he's a master of computer scientist. And then, Bobby, who's been on, on Absolute AppSec before as well, like he he has an extremely strong operational background in things, and, and he has a very strong uh, like psychology background on things. So we try to we try to bring like very mixed teams together for these sorts of things to assess software from from various different sides. You know, 
not just the, the OWASP top 10 or those sorts of things. And there's still value in doing that, right? Like we still have assessments where we give clients a top, like an OWASP top 10 checklist to do, um, but that's not our main focus. Our main focus is, is on correctness and, and things that we see like in the OX report that you have there. So yeah, it's crazy. It's very specific to, to what this is doing. Very cool. Yeah. Oh man, and this is over eight eight person weeks, which I like that you call it person weeks, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. And with four engineers working from oh, and by the way, Seth, what do they have in there? They have the commit hash. <laughs> yes, I know. Commit. I did I did notice that right at the top. I was like, oh sweet, look. <laughs> There's yeah. a commit hash. Good. We know where For they those, started. For <laughs> those that don't know, Seth and I harp on that so much because well, there's many reasons, but just a couple of the big ones are one, we need to know what's, so if you ever go back and redo an assessment, it's easier to look at like what's changed since that commit. But another big one is like, if something gets introduced, was it introduced before or after you did your assessment? So that's like always a good question to answer. And like, that's, yeah. Anyways, we harp on that a lot, but that's awesome to see it here, right there up in your face in the executive summary. I love it. Well, we we try to we try to track the the commit hash because obviously, like you said, it's super useful for retests. It's useful to to know. But then we also coordinate with customers. So sometimes we've had reports where it's like, "Hey, your Git history includes something sensitive," and they'll do rewriting, they'll move things around, and then we actually change the hash that we push in the public report so that it is it points to the correct one that any of that information is removed, what whatever it is, you know. So. Yeah, we, we nice. hashes a lot. That's super smart. Man, that's awesome. You guys got it together. You seem to know what you're doing over there. <laughs> we try. <laughs> we try. What's this? Stefan's a professional? <laughs> yeah. You, you've been lying to us all this time, Stefan. I know. I, I have to turn in my hacker credentials. I, I am actually a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we try to be like we at Trail of Bits. I think I'm one of the few people that doesn't have any degree, let alone uh, like an advanced degree. But we, we do try to tend towards like these are the things we did. These are the because we've all been on those assessments where you have zero findings. And what do you report? Well, we we all if we knew exactly the sort of questions that we were asking and we knew what we were testing the application for, the report is still relatively easy. Right. Mm -hmm. Look, I interrogated all these like 250 things that I could think of. And here's the test that I did. We're all doing it, right? It's just Trail of Bits is trying to make it extremely explicit what we did and put it in the report, provide test code, that sort of thing, uh, so that clients can just know when we have a zero finding report, which is rare, but it's it happens what we did. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you got to be able to show your work, man. That's mm -hmm. the big thing. You got to be able to show your work and what you're testing and... You know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that one technique that we, we talk about is like, even if you've got the time mapping out routes and even putting bullet points underneath each route that you assessed and saying, like, here's the things that we were concerned about and looked at, but here's why it's not an issue. And like, literally just filling out your notes of like, I looked at this path, this path, this path, this path, these functions, whatever it is, however you want to delineate and break it down. And then, yeah, just because like, if you can show your work, you at, and you can show the commit hash. You can show that at that time, like you did test for these things, but there was nothing, there's just nothing to report on there, you know, and that happens. I'd say it's pretty rare that I feel like we come across something that doesn't have anything, but 
it's not impossible for sure. And, 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 and some people don't find anything, but then they put bullshit in a report and waste people's time with fluff just so they can feel validated. And like, they're, you know, this person got what they paid for. Well, no, they didn't. Now you like, yeah. now you probably strain the relationship with the engineers because they have to go fix stuff. That's not legit. And their security teams putting it in front of them. Like, well, we paid somebody money to do that. And so we had to get something and they said it's important. So you should probably do it. Even if, you know what I mean? It's like, just having findings is not better than having no findings, but showing your notes is like how you mitigate any questions about that, like right. why you don't have work. Yeah. 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 And, and being able to talk about why something is low hanging fruit or why something is just like, yeah, we, we know we're adding this. It's just the best practice. And, and here's how we tested it. And here's the implications of this best practice that's low hanging fruit done, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. There's a lot of fluff. I, you and I, we've all three on this call seen a lot of fluff in reports that shouldn't have been there. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. My, my reports are always know. succinct and there's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't, like, I keep going back, right? Like, I, I mean, both Stefan and I now are, you know, on the consulting side still. And the time to actually do something like that. Right. Like I, I, I always, I keep fighting or I keep running into it. Right. And it's, it's usually on engagements where I don't have a good discussion or I don't have the opportunity to talk with the client beforehand um, before they scope things out and actually decide what they want to do. Um, that, that the problem usually surfaces. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there isn't the ability to go in and say, and to have that discussion about, hey, what do you want to accomplish with this? It's usually they come in, they're going through somebody and they, you know, hey, we have, you know, 30 hours to give you or whatever, right? Like, which is just an insanely low amount of time to actually find something in code. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where I'm really going with that outside of the communication channels have got to be open with the customer. Um, like, I, I know I've been struggling with it with this the past couple of weeks, right, where they can't get me into a code or they can't get me into running code base. Um, they're giving me old code and then they're expecting me to turn around in two days and give them something to, to fix before they go live. And like, I'm, I just keep going back to this discussion of what is it that you're trying to accomplish here, right? And you wrote this scope, you know, you, the customer told us that this is what you wanted. You can't come back to me and say, hey, I like when I tell you this is what it's going to take to actually get through this, come back two days before you want it done and say, all right, you know, take that and throw it out the window and now just do like your best effort. Right? Like I just, I feel burned by this a lot. Right. Um, and I, I guess that's why I'm, I'm, you know, getting on a soapbox about it or whatever, <laughs> but uh, it just, it's a difficult, difficult thing. And I understand that money's involved, uh, but at the same time, it's also my reputation, right? Like, you know, it doesn't feel good to produce a report where I just didn't have the time to actually look at things. Right. It doesn't. Uh, Scope is a huge part of like having that extended timeline, like what trail bits had had on some of these assessments, they put reports out on it. And having multiple people, which I just want to point out is another very good strategy because that then you have other, it's like what you were saying earlier, uh, Stefan, with pulling in people with the various backgrounds is our brains aren't wired to think exactly the same if they, well, okay, I don't want to, 
let's not get into a nuanced topic like that. We all have various risks when we look at something that we factor in. And the more people with the more diverse sort of backgrounds and experience that you bring at a problem, the more things that you're going to come up with as a list of things to check. And there's also just the idea of more eyes equals more scrutiny. But um, anyways, like, yeah, having all those, all that, you know what I'm trying to say? Having more than one person look at something is super incredibly helpful. Well, yeah. Even even for per- like Trailer Bits, very rarely has one person one week assessments or one person less than one week assessments. And and part of that is like, well, what happens if you're sick or you need to like your kid is sick or you need to go do something <laughs> like yeah, other, other than work on something. And uh, you know, wait, there's life outside of work. Yeah, I know it's strange. Um, but no, I mean like. We, we we all came from a place that uh, like you know necessarily had issues with with those sorts of things at times, but uh, like I love how everyone's like I'm not coming. <laughs> I'm Take a drink. drink. <laughs> those that know know. <laughs> but like you know, Trail of Bits really tries to make sure that when folks are on an assessment, like if you know I I'm I'm a single dad like there are times when I've had to go get my son early from from school or whatever and uh you know if if there's a client call should I be like in the principal's office or not in the principal's office but in the in the nurse's office like hey picking up my kid but also let me talk about your you know 10 high findings or should I be able to rely on like a colleague who has been on the assessment just as long and knows what they're talking about and and that's it you know so yeah I know which one I prefer and it's definitely not talking like in school or trying to find a location outside that still works or whatever, you know, which is another good reason to have a good collaborative um, tool set to be able to like pass notes and just findings and whatnot back and forth just so that, and you know, they can see real time what you're finding and you're just like updating. And so that it's easier for another person to go. It's just an argument for having good centralized tooling or, Tooling around good centralized note taking and report. Yeah, we, we use GitHub exclusively. Of course you do, because no, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> we, we we use GitHub for notes. We use GitHub for tool output. We use GitHub for client interactions. Uh, like for example, if we have an assessment that's less than less than two weeks, we'll actually uh, we we may not produce a report. And we literally just invite customers to a GitHub repo. And it's like, here's the findings, you know, and very yeah. frequently customers are perfect. Like if they have no, no one else that they have to share it with, no other stakeholders, they just want Jira tickets. Why, like, why should they lose time on, on looking at code when we could just be opening Jira tickets for them via GitHub? You know, man, that's, that's a perfect, that's a perfect point. You're just getting it in, you know, it's, it's just, instead of having waiting till the end and having like this long readout call, which Seth, oh my God, how many of those did we do with, <laughs> with, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not crapping on fishnet. That's just the way business was done back then. Again, I yeah. actually look back on that and, and on that experience with fishnet and actually see like that they, they were early on pioneering some good ideas. Um, so this is not a burn on them, but that is how it was done. And that's how it was done for a long time, actually, was you just got on these readout calls at the very end. So your assessment might be scoped, like you said um, earlier, for like two two weeks or whatever it may be. And then there's probably another week or two of passing the report back and forth because, you know, the company wants edits. 
So it could be up to easily like a month be from the start of the engagement till the end when you sit down, do a long readout. The readout's all, of course, nobody ever reviews a report until like either on the call or five minutes before the call. Yeah. So then you're just re, you're just going, oh, it's just like such a, a time waste. So that's amazing that you guys have that alternative sort of approach where you're just like, boom, Jira ticket, Jira ticket for each finding. And then it's like a real time update. Yeah. We, we do that, but we also have weekly status reports, which is common in blockchain security for some reason. But we, we also do that for our traditional customers as well. And so like if you have a four calendar week assessment, you actually receive four reports from us. Uh, so there's there's three interstitial reports and then a final report that includes all of the interstitial reports findings, plus the last week's finding, as well as our, our you know, summation of how the assessment went. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that. Uh, I don't know that that, that was always the the goal, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I, I feel like at Fishnet and some of those early consultancies, it really came out of hey, there was the network assessment guys, right? That uh, you know they started the penetration testing, I you know, and they would do their scan, then they would review the output, right? Like it was just like it it was this process before they would actually turn any results over to the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they liked that, hey, we walk into that room and hey, look at what we did, right? Like that was the, the big reveal of how elite they were um, rather than we're, we're partners with the developers and we're trying to fix your code, uh, which is the, the battle that we've been fighting for the last 10 plus years is, hey, let me, you know, I don't need to go through a project manager. Let me talk to your developers. Right. Let me actually interact with the people that are, that are writing this code. And guess what? You'll get a better result. If you don't, you're going to get that big reveal. You're going to have to go back and patch things, and it's going to be a bigger problem for you and cost you more money than if you just like set that communication up. I feel like Slack has helped. Like communication channels have helped a ton. Like I, like my the the number of Slack channels that I'm in nowadays is ridiculous. Right? It, <laughs> it, is, it is borderline insane. Um, I have to like curate. All right, these are the active ones. These are the inactive. But it's all the customers that have invited me into their Slack channels, or we set up like a you know a shared channel, whatever it is, just for that reason because it helps with hey, guess what? I need you to put in a Jira ticket. This is what I found. I don't need to wait to go through a project manager and generate a report or a PDF that you're never going to use anyway. Why don't I just give you all the details right here? You can go fix it. Tell me when it's done, and I'll include it in the report after the fact if we need to. Right. Um, and those are the ones that I love working with. It's the ones where I don't have access to any of that. That they have like a single point of contact who doesn't understand security anyway, and he's just a compliance guy. And yeah, that, that we're stuck on. Um, but I feel like the industry is going that, that that direction, right? The way that you guys are doing it over at Trail of Bits. So. Dude, no joke. I want to ask you both a question. Sure. We've all gone through the heavily edited, like from um, a grammar. And, and spelling perspective, not like the merit of the technical aspects of the report, but from the how well it's worded, um, grammar, spelling perspective, where it, it almost, it takes a long time, like a lot of ed- edits back and forth. Is it worth it in your opinions? That's that's what I'm curious because I've, I go back and forth on it. It seems like a really, because we've seen that where it can be really heavy handed. Is it worth it? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. I, I think so I, I, Seth and I have talked about this well. 
you know, quite a few times, but engineers are really good sometimes at finding things and not necessarily really good at relaying things to customers. Uh, so when, when we all work together at Invisium, like one of the things that I harped on the most is what is the impact of this? Like, why does the customer care? Why yeah. do they care? Right. At, at Trail of Bits, it's less that sort of thing. And it's more uh, like the, the remediation effort for, for things like, making sure that this is a like we understand the the technical guide of things now we have to go for like maybe the operational side and things like that there but always there's there's some use in having peers look at your your findings and then some some grammatical person to make sure you you know spiel good and and grammar better and that sort of thing you know <laughs> like, so. yeah and that Brian so that, agrees so, with you, Brian Glass. He wrote, if the report is going... I'm sorry, Seth. I just wanted to read this real quick. If the report is going to be read, yes, because it isn't well-written. Because if... I think you meant to say, because if it isn't well-written, you risk losing the trust in the contents of the report. Yeah. So, And that, that was going to be my point, is it depends... It, it's the audience, right? Um, mm. Like I, I always go back to... Um, yes, it's one thing if I'm communicating with the developers and they can ask questions, then right. Like that, the whole informal communications is fine. But the second that it goes to someone that may not understand what's going on, um, it's gotta be more succinct because it is then a reflection of the work that I did or the work that the, the company did or the company paid for. Um, so it, yeah, it all goes back to audience for me, but I do find it useful. Um, yeah, no, sorry. I just, I just, report. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, was yeah. just, I, yeah, I was just reading that from Brian. <laughs> I like how it throws his face up very big in the, the I know, <laughs> I know he's probably yeah. not, he's, I'll, I'll take it down because he's <laughs> like, dude, why are you put my face? Well, he's been on the podcast. So yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> his face has already been on here. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an interesting set of things, and and uh, Trail Bits has uh, obviously folks like Evan, Evan Sultanic, who's in the the votes report there. Like Evan is probably one of the best technical writers I have ever worked with. You know, he's he works on uh, proof of concept or get the fuck out. So he's very. We now have to mark this episode as explicit uh, as <laughs> normal when I'm on. <laughs> but, <laughs> Don't worry about it. Evan is on. Uh, Evan works on proof of concept or get the fuck out, and uh, he's a great technical writer. He has very like very strong writing abilities, and and you know like there's not as much that needs to be done for someone who who writes very frequently, right? Yeah. But even then, like you know, Seth is a great writer, and when when we've written reports together, like there's there's always things that's like, hey, well, actually, you remember this thing or that thing or whatever it is, you know. It's, I think that peer review process is expensive, but worth it. No, I, okay. So I remember this, uh, like back when we worked together, right? Like when I first came on board, uh, this, and I think this was before your time. Like, so when we were at Fishnet, Ken, I remember getting like, because I was writing so much, right? Like we were producing right. reports on it. Like I was reviewing reports like every other day on it, you know, as one of like their principal consultants and like you get really good at wordsmithing and like, the, you know, and then I took a couple years off where I was internal and I wasn't creating as many and then came over to, you know, work with Ken again. And I remember like putting in my first report together and then kicking it over to, you know, JP or whoever, right? And JP, like, it's hitting me up on Slack. And he's like, you know, uh, 
Ken, Ken would, you know, probably rip this apart. And I was like, Oh crap. Right. You know, like, <laughs> so I went from like, okay, yeah, I'm the one that's reviewing the reports to, Oh no, like I, I now suck. Right. <laughs> you know, man, um, I go back and forth on it, you know, but I, I think the points you guys laid out are like, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I was genuinely, I'm genuinely curious. Like, what do you, what do you think of those sort of like heavy handed, but man, yeah, the points you laid out show a good, especially like because how many times let's just take we all three have kids how many times have you said something to your kid and then they regurgitate it like a couple days later like what did you think i said <laughs> like what <laughs> and that happens with adults too it's just you could say something and they completely misunderstand what you're saying because you just didn't say it and they're you know in a way that they interpreted it correctly yeah i mean so it's like having having somebody else take a look at it. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's especially the extremely technical like nature of what we do, uh, you know, you're trying to represent an esoteric vulnerability in a code base in a specific function. Uh, like, you know, I, I mean, or a crypto library or whatever, you know, Stefan, like that's, uh, yeah. Uh, Is it Joshua Vaughn? Yeah. Was it Joshua Vaughn? Yeah. Fishnet. Yeah. He, the, he was what I was, that, that was the process I was actually thinking about was, um, cause that we had a tech oh, writer. Technical, yeah. The tech yeah. writer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Josh I still, got you yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure you guys do as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Stefan, you guys have a tech writer that you depend on and yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Like, she, she's great too. Uh, Noelle, she goes through uh, our reports and whatnot. Um, and she's, you know, and, and as, as both of you know, I'm I'm known for using like very simplistic wording and and like <laughs> yeah yeah you're just so easy to follow. Sure, she <laughs> loves you. <laughs> Not pelagic at all. Like you know, uh, there's 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 you know obviously some people are much better at, at writing uh, like succinct terse terse ways uh, than others. Dan. Uh, Dan is uh, like notorious for going through reports and like removing utilize for use or like just changing it to the, to the past tense form of the verb. And he's right. Like there's, we very frequently will say words that we just don't need. Uh, Lenny Zettler has a whole, has a whole class from, from SANS that's about technical writing for, for uh, InfoSec reporting. You and know what, when, when I do, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, I was just going to say when I, sorry about that. When I build presentations, that's um, what I, I don't know if like I've ever told you, told you Seth or told you Stefan, but when I build presentations, that's, that's what I'm going for because when you get up there, your drilling goes, my, I always get like a little bit nervous. Um, so not only with less words, do you get your point across more clearly sometimes, but also it's easier to like have a, something you remember when you're up on stage. So um yeah, to your point, like it, it, it is, it does make communication much easier. But also, if you do that while you're speaking, it makes it makes it less awkward mm -hmm. when you get nervous. It's easier to forget things uh, versus if you're just succinct. It's not as easy to forget. I, I I don't write anything for my talk. I just have a bunch of slides and just go through them and talk like I do on these. I admit it fully. I'm I'm perfectly with that <laughs> yeah no no I, I but i think you're right you know uh ken as far as right making sure that you pr also your presentations um but to stefan's point right like i i very rarely give the same talk right or the same class 
Like I can look at the same slide and depending on my mood that day, right? Like it may be that, you know, you step, you know, half an hour into some long winded discussion on, you know, insecure direct object reference. And this one time I found it, blah, 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 blah. Or it might be that I'm just like, nah, we're not filming this. Let's move on. Right. And it's very much like an audience thing rather than, Hey, I have this, this is what I say every single time. Um, yeah. But I think that comes with experience, right? That that's one of those, Hey, you're public speaking. You know, how do you relate with the people that are in the, in the room with you? Because that, you know, and that's one of the reasons I actually hate like doing uh, like webcasts or like teaching online, even though we're going to go do AppSec days. We'll see how it goes, right? Now, now that everybody's in a choice, room, though, that's the coronavirus or COVID-19 or Rona or whatever you, what term you want to oh, use. Uh, yeah, but like is because of that interaction, right? Being able to read a room is very difficult in a virtual environment, right? It's easy when it's the three of us and we're very well acquainted, uh, but it's when when it's people you you don't know very well. Um, it's a lot easier to do that in person where it is difficult in a virtual environment. So Absolutely. yeah, we'll see where it goes. Sorry. I, I missed that. What was that from? Uh, there was another quote from Brian that you popped up there. No, just saying the same things you guys were saying. I'm oh, sorry, Stefan. I, we bring you on just so I can interrupt you. Apparently. <laughs> sorry. Today. Um, no, he's saying like how often you dismiss reports because there's a grammatical issue there or talks because there's a grammatical issue in a slide or something like that. Uh, yeah. You know, things like that. That's why you use the Takahashi method for your slides, which is like you have very little on screen ever so that you can't fuck up the slides. It, it, yeah. it's, it's, it makes it so much easier. Um, you know, but it, it depends on what you're going for with slides too. Some people like Dave Wickers, uh, one of the OWASP people, he was always, uh, he used to run the top 10 and whatnot. He's a huge proponent for having slides with a ton of information that you can print and look at later. Yeah. But it's not how I prefer very sparse slides. Dude, you know what I'm gonna do? I think I'm gonna build a chat bot that is like uh, Stefan me and then put in like a, the quote and then just brings up the Wikipedia entry for whatever. <laughs> I think that's going to be my so, pet project this weekend since I've got nothing else going on. <laughs> you're quarantined. You can't do BJJ. Go build a Stefan bot. Yep. Sounds, sounds like a it, good, yeah. good use of your time. Yes. I got I'll literally just micro pick up thing. wiki results. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, no, it's it's like Riker Google's things. That that bot that just prints out things that Riker has been googling from from from. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of this, but that's got to be awesome. Yeah, uh, Riker Google things. Yeah, no, I'm like looking it up now. Yeah, Riker, Riker Google. googling. This is a Twitter yep. account. Yeah, it's a Twitter account that just basically like it has things <laughs> like Ponfar is a pre-existing condition. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I'm posting a link. Why not? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there That's you awesome. go. Oh man. So since we're on the topic of virtual and um, you know, distance and that, I don't know. It somehow re loosely relates to Zoom. I was curious if any of if either of you wanted to put any hot takes out there for the recent Zoom activity that we've seen. Um. Yep. I, I think. Yeah, I don't I, know. I hate things. <laughs> your faces dude i wish i had taken a screenshot of your faces right now i'm gonna go back and take a screenshot and post it on our Twitter account both both of you are just like eh. <laughs> I, 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 yeah 
My, I just I, I don't know. There, there was like... that. There was that that whole thread that went on in Gin and Juice um, about Zoom, right? Was that in random? This been. Did a... you guys see? Did you guys see that? Yes, I think I participated. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure you did, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see it. Okay, so you know, Mike, this just in: users are using bad passwords. Zoom has done nothing to prevent this. Another huge blow to Zoom. More at five. Uh, Zoom transmit video details of users' physical location. Huge opsec fail. You know what I mean? Like they just like ripped into the fact that everybody's reporting. Hey, Zoom is doing awful things, um, but it's basically the users that are doing it, right? Like the whole. Oh, guess what? We found all these Zoom recordings that people left around unprotected. Uh, yeah, if somebody takes their Zoom recording, the default format and pushes it up to a web page or to AWS and exposes it, anybody can download it, right? Like that's not Zoom's fault, but they're getting blamed for it. So it's it's just everybody seems to be piling on because Zoom is being heavily used. I know it's a bad thing when I get like my dad asking me if I've heard about how insecure Zoom is. Wow. <laughs> my, my dad's Man. a photographer, right? Like... Like he can barely figure out how to how to run the camera on his iPhone, and so him saying like, "Oh, Zoom is you know is bad," and I'm like, <sighs> "Yeah, you know." And this brings up, I don't, and I don't want to get too much into the topic, but this does bring up to me the point that like some people um, are not taking uh, like the the coronavirus, for instance, or COVID nineteen, whatever you want to call it. Um, because I know coronavirus is just classification of it, but I know that's why some people don't take it seriously is because this is what the media does. It's not, I don't feel like I've, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and there are like major security industry people who are really piling on. But from what I've seen, it's mostly the media. And this is the issue is the yeah. media takes things and they've just completely sensationalized it for profit, which we've known for a long time. But unfortunately, like in a situation so for instance, with, with Zoom, people have to use this because of the situation that we're in now where we're socially distanced. They have to use a product. I personally feel like Zoom works pretty damn well compared to everything else I've ever tried. And it's like, you know, they're sensationalizing it because everybody's using it. And what are people, I mean, I've seen, I have seen family members asking, what are the alternatives to this? And I'm like, you don't, I, there's just, there's no, there's no scale of like what's, People don't know. They just see that the media put this out. They don't know anything about it. It's scary. I mean, this is like how it is for Zoom for many of the other topics. And I don't want to get turn this into a political thing, but like that's that's what it comes down to is like the media sensationalizing things and people not having enough knowledge about the facts to 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 rationalize and like understand what, what the real risk is. It's it's infuriating, honestly. Yeah. I, I, and it's not just, and, and we're security saying that, right? But imagine how these other, like, like the like people that work at the CDC and just like, you know, how many like right now people that are are working towards in these different fields are just like pissed off the same way we are about how things get over sensationalized and and yeah, freak people out. Zoom is in a hard position because they they wanted to make meeting software to make business meetings simple, right? Yeah, and now now it's like. Well, little kids are in there and, and, you know, maybe patients are like talking to their doctors there. And it's like a very different application than maybe what they were initially starting with. And I, I like, are there things that Zoom can fix? Like, yeah, there's things every single software vendor can fix and ever, unless they have like a formally specified system that they, you know, did security properties with and blah, 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 blah. Um, 
you know, I, so I, I just, I think Zoom can fix things. I think they're, they're, they're trying to fix things. They're making a good effort, but um, <laughs> yeah. And Kyle's not wrong there either. Um, yeah. You know, like, I think, I think there's, there's a case to be made. So Kyle says, you're not wrong, but it doesn't change how I spent hours coming up with a solution to apply passwords to all of our meetings. So default users don't have to worry about it. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think yeah. Zoom can fix those sorts of things and Kyle's spot on, but uh, like, I don't think that means that we should like throw the baby out with the bathwater because if you try to do that, like I, I, you know, Slack just had a DTLS bug, right? Yeah. Are we going to, is everyone going to stop using Slack now because Slack screwed up some, some DTLS? Like, I don't think so. Yeah. No. No, I, well, and that's, I, yeah, that's that's just it, right? Like, the the bad actors are going to jump on whatever is most popular, right? They always do. Uh, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the backlash from that because it's really easy for the media to report, oh, my gosh, there was this class or there was this business meeting that was running. Someone connected that wasn't invited and then started posting, you know, porn or whatever, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, obviously, that's a bad issue. Zoom has already come out and said, guess what? We're fixing this. There's instructions on how to use passwords. Like, let's make sure that we train up the teachers or whoever else so that that doesn't, that, so that it doesn't happen. And then after that, the rest of the findings that are out there, I'm like, look, the stuff that came out with WebEx, how long ago was that, right? Like, it was very similar, right? They had the same problems. It's just that Zoom is the, is the favorite right now because it's super easy to use. Uh, the uh, they were smart about releasing it for free for educators to use. And like, I, I don't feel like it's a bad thing, right? Like, I, I mean, if somebody wants to use it and has a question and comes to us, we should answer it and say, hey, this is how you do it securely and then move on. Um, it's yeah. like if you're creating this much, much distrust by over sensationalizing, you know, whatever comes up, whatever security flaw comes up, how are people supposed to know when to trust us? How are yeah. people supposed to know like, okay, hey, the experts say this one is really serious, but then it's like, but Zoom's like this. If you have Zoom, you're gonna get owned. Like, you know what I mean? And we're putting out conflicting messages and it's just, it, and not we, not we, you know, the media. And it's it's frustrating as, as hell, so. Well, and yeah. it, it's also hard for the media because they they talk to someone and they're like, well, what's the, like imagine reading a Trail of Bits report and you are a non-technical reader, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you go in and you're like, oh my God, there's a rounding error in there. And uh, <laughs> they rated it as a high or they rated it as a medium. And like, that means that the, the company wasn't wasn't handling rounding of, of money correctly. And now my money's not safe with them. And it's like, well, well, actually, hang on, wait, there's an edge case where if you do several things, the rounding algorithm has like a degenerative case and that's a problem. And it, it, it could be a problem, it's a high, it's a medium, whatever it is, but translating that from, from technical speak, from mathematical speak to like everyday speech so that people understand things is, is nuanced and difficult. And it's, it's not easy for, for reporters who very often don't have technical backgrounds to do. Well. And I think with your with Trail of Bits and with votes, there was a finding that the uh, independent bug bounty researcher found that like lined up with Trail of Bits. And if if I'm correct, the finding was an, an implementation detail. It's if you choose to use that part of the app and if you, you know, if you're using that and you don't do certain things to configure it, it's, mm -hmm. I re, it's really fuzzy. 
because it was all of like two weeks ago or a week ago or whatever it was that we went over it. Whatever. My memory is terrible. But anyways, it, it was more like if you actually use this, which then votes was like, we don't, nobody uses this. This isn't is, and it's, it was like, no, it wouldn't be implemented in this way. It wouldn't be used for that. It's more for like, I think it was just like, not. it's just like an unused part of the app and you wouldn't even have a reason to go there. But you, and when you hire a professional who has a conversation with like, so if Trail Bits is contracted out, you guys are actually talking to your customer. You're actually communicating with the engineers. Like to Seth's point about Slack, you have communication channels where you can say, hey, this is what we're seeing. So when you write it up, you can put with some context, yes, it would be, but caveats A, B, and C apply here. Whereas, you know, a researcher finds it, says, well, somebody else marked it down. So this is bullshit. I should be getting paid. And then like, you know, cause it is valid. And then, you know, it's, it, it's like, well, yeah, but not really, you know? And, and yeah. It, it, it's hard. It's hard for independent researchers to do that sort of thing. And, and trailer bits on that. Yeah. unfettered access to, to votes. So it was much easier for us to be like, you know, to call the votes team and say, Hey, we're looking at this thing you know, can you explain this to us a little bit more? Whereas like an outside researcher, it's like, they're looking at it, uh, you know, they're, they're poking it and it's hard to get context there. And it, it, is it bad from, from what they're describing? Absolutely. But like, it's kind of the NIST 830 sort of like there's system risk and then there's organizational risk, right? Like right. if you have an XSS on the lunch menu, yeah, that might be a high for the lunch menu. But like in terms of what your business is, it's like, no, that's literally on a, like a kiosk in the in the cafeteria that is not connected to anything, and there's no PII or PCI or any other data on there. So who cares, right? Yeah. So it, it's hard at times to balance all those sorts of things, and I think that's what we were seeing with with votes very frequently. It's like getting that balance was hard because they they haven't had the time to to come up with a lot of these policies, and and we help them with with pointers on how to do that. You know, so. Well, I mean, to go back to Zoom as well, right? Like the 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 findings that are out there, it's you're trying to translate it for a lay person to understand what's going on. And then we have people in the industry that want to, I, I don't know, boost their profile. So of course, of course, I mean, you know, we're talking about it as well, but like they're going to go to a large organization and tell them how bad it is and reinforce that, like whatever the reporter is saying just to get their face in the news or whatever else is going on, right? Um, and so, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like it's all kind of related in that whole communication aspect and how people understand things. And it even goes back to the things like, to the PR that we're talking about, right? Making things understandable to the audience that is that is exposed to it, right? And, and not sensationalizing it for eyeballs but i don't think we're ever going to get away from that in the in the world that we live at, right like that's that's just how media works so well and and also with zoom right like you know you actually have to know what you're installing zoom on like there may be machines at your organization that should not have have access to zoom like they shouldn't have access to unfettered internet connections either like you know there's that's that's a question of like your your organization catalog, your your like infosec risk, many many different functions. But closet or blanket saying no Zoom at at our organization is probably not nuanced enough. Yeah, yeah. and I'm adding in this bit about segment from Leaf at segment his running a bug bounty because there's a few 
things to your to, to, to kind of like your points about about scope and about you know sort of like um, understanding context and understanding nuances and and all of those things. Like I think that the article kind of touches upon that a little bit, which is like so if you're going to have a someone like votes or whatever it is, like come on, if you're going to have your own bug bagging program, basically like give a good idea of scope. And then, but also like one thing that I know we, we've been trying to, to do at, at GitHub is trying to let people know what is considered like not really, what is considered spammy or abusive. And then therefore for doesn't really fall under the bug bounty. Cause there's things you can do to be obnoxious. You can put a thousand or a million emojis in, in something and cause, you know, sometimes some issues or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just throwing that out as a, not a real example, but just as a, as an example. And so those are the things you kind of have to call out as like, um, we don't really, you know, that's not, that's more, it's going to get flagged and it's going to be, there's like a team dedicated to spamming and abusive behavior. That's just one example. There may be things that your program doesn't care about at all. Like you guys are saying, and like, give a good reason why and update it and make it publicly uh, accessible on your bug bounty site, whether that's on whatever one of these platforms or whether you have a different dedicated page to it that you host. Well, and, and from knowing um, like Evan was that segment, right? And I know Leaf is, Leaf is over there. Like they segment has a strong set of policies that they apply for these sorts of things. And they, they have a strong understanding of, of, of applied scope what what sort of risk they have that their categorization all the like policy stuff that we we've been talking about so it obviously just behooves you to do that sort of that sort of basic basic policy work basic you know sanitary work that you need to have in your organization to keep things keep things running smoothly you know and then you know the the blogging that that we're pointing out here and other things it, it obviously then just makes it much easier when you have those things because you can just point to those policies and reference them so, yeah. Yep. That makes it, it's, 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 it's more upfront work, but so much less over time. You don't have to, you just write it up. Actually, that's kind of funny. I was having a conversation at work yesterday about like, that's um, when writing up, whether it's like a bug bounty submission that came in, that's valid, or if it's a finding we found or something, we were actually talking about these yesterday, which is like trying to be as detailed as possible and more as, as much future forward thinking uh, as possible because you will probably have to come reference your write-up later. Mm -hmm. And we've been seeing that over and over again, where if someone gets a really detailed write-up and then like, for instance, I know in the last week I've referenced at least two or three times one of my coworkers write-ups just because like they did such a good job. And so we, we were kind of just chatting about that yesterday. It's like, you know, thinking how we can always do that, you know, try to, try to be, forward thinking and, and as explicit as possible or it's, as comprehensive as possible. It's hard. It's hard. It's yeah. hard to do. And it, it, it takes work. And so, like Seth and I have worked on projects and Ken, you and I have worked on projects where it's like figuring out what we want to test and figuring out how to write it up and relay it to people. And then like, you know, and understanding it six months later when you have to retest is <laughs> is hard, you know? Yep. <laughs> That's the one that is always hard. I go back and, and not even from six months, do you guys go back? I'm just wondering if this is like, if this is just because of the sheer volume of, you know, doing assessments over and over and over and over again for years and years and years. But man, I'll go back and I, I honestly looked at a write up from like a few months ago and I genuinely did not 
remember the details. If it wasn't for that write-up, I would have completely forgot. I was like, huh, what? Like, honestly, I was like, wow, that was a coherent write-up. I did that? Like, <laughs> I was like, wow, okay, cool. that's, that's the best case scenario, right? Like, you know, I, I always try to, like, when I'm writing up, like, steps or something like that, I'm, it, that's my audience is, okay, when I come back to this three months from now and can't remember anything about this application or the code base or whatever, can I pick this up and within two minutes know what I'm talking about? Because that's what's going to happen, right? Is the client's going to ask a question and I don't, I'm not going to have two hours to dig back into the code and figure it out because I've done that before, right? Like I think we all have where you go yeah. back, oh, I have this finding. Wait, how did I, like I've got one screenshot here and it says, look at this with an arrow, right? And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, I'm cursing myself because my name's on the top of that report <laughs> that I didn't actually document it, how it needed to be done, right? Like, and, right. and it, it, was, it was probably fine when I was talking to the developers because it was fresh on my mind and I could explain everything, but the write-up itself was deficient, so... Yeah, it's it's hard. I I have the opposite where it's like if you put me in, if you drop me into a report where I've done, I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I was looking at blah blah blah, and uh, like it's it's not always a blessing too because sometimes you need to extract yourself from from reports and be like, oh, I'm looking at this new like yes, I've seen this code before, but I need to I need to approach this with a fresh set of eyes because they you know did something completely different, even though some of the code yeah they changed it or whatever I, yeah. Dude, that bias is a real is a real thing. Like you go back and you're sort of like, oh yeah, you, which is which is part of the weirdness of when you have somebody come behind you and retest and they find things that you didn't. And I think that that's that's always been something that's been frustrating from a consulting perspective is because sometimes your clients think like, well, man, you guys just like, I mean, if you're missing a bunch of high end criticals that another company found you know, that were in the code base when you reviewed it. Okay. That's different, but we're talking about like, you know, maybe some, again, going back to people just putting fluff into reports, you know, that you get a retest and be like, Oh man, they had 13 findings. You guys had nine, nothing's changed, you know? And you're like, well, what did they report on? you know, and that's, that's yeah. the variation. Sometimes it's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's not the case of they're just fluffing up the report. They're just putting in things that they're, that they as a person are biased towards looking at. It's just a weird thing to, to replicate. And that's why people always want to revert back to checklists and, and create like really stringent processes so that for these big, specifically like big consultancies, you know, like high pain, like not high pain, like high, high cost, big, the Walmart style consulting where they really want to drive home that uniform process. It's because they don't want one of their consultants to come back to the same thing in six months. And then like that consultant's bias towards you know, finding this or that or the other, and it's all, or even reporting it. Some people like, I know there's things I just, I, I see it, but it's not worth reporting. And so, yeah, you got that, that like trend towards wanting to make everything uniform and all the same and have a checklist. It's weird. It's a weird place. It's nuanced. Yeah. It yeah. is. It is. I, well, and I mean, it goes, I, I don't know. It all goes back to kind of that scoping discussion as well, right? Like what, what are they trying to get out of it, right? Are they really trying to secure things? Is it a compliance check? We, I, I know we've all had this discussion before, um, but that goes back to security properties. Is it actually a, you know, is it fully defined? Is it, you know, yeah, it, it's a difficult thing, but I don't think most organizations are willing to pay 
the the cost that it would take to fully secure a vet an application. Right? They just, you know, I, somebody coming to me with two hundred thousand or a million lines of code doesn't, you know, maybe they should want to, you know, want me to look at it for four months, but most likely they they only have budget for two weeks or four weeks, and that's it. Um, and and you know, I, I always have that caveat of this is what the scope was. We did a best effort because realistically, it's always going to be best effort unless they're going to instrument and they're going to give us the time to do that. So, yeah, you need you need test data. You need te like you need test data, test environment, uh, like all the assumptions that they have. So, like very frequently, Trail of Bits will use uh, like more more abstract styles of testing, like property testing, like symbolic yeah. execution, that sort of thing. Uh, but even if you're doing symbolic execution, like you can, you can bit bash, you can randomly generate inputs for things, right? Uh, you can recover type information. You can do all sorts of, of stuff with with symbolic execution. However, it's much faster if someone gives you like, hey, this is what the environment looks like, and this is what a normal transaction looks like, and then from there you can negate, uh, you know, an if statement. You can you can do all sorts of work to expand your breadth of coverage. It's much easier. That's what Microsoft did with Sage. Um, okay. You know, it's white box testing with Sage. Uh, I'll find a link. Speaking <laughs> of testing, we got a question of you, Seth. Uh, Seth, Stefan. Uh, do I have a unicorn security toolkit? And if if so, what is it? Uh, so Seth actually has seen me do this before. I, I actually, uh, it depends on the application, but like for for network for network items, I literally will just open up Wireshark, uh, dump things to see, run it through Redomsa, and then see if I can get crashes out of that to get started. Um, I've also started using, <laughs> I mean, it works. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. I, I, I yeah. We, <laughs> yeah, we, we've, had, we've had some fun with that within the last month, right? So, yeah. yep. Yeah, and so we have, I, I do that very frequently. I also use, uh, I've been playing around with Eclipser. So Eclipser is a, a gray box, um, fuzzer, basically, it's it's halfway between fuzzing and symbolic execution, um, and then uh, we we have some at Trail of Bits. We have a fork of GoSec that has some some things that we look for. So, like if I have a Go assessment, we have some tooling that we're working on open sourcing that sort of thing. So, I I have a few tricks in, of the trade that I do. Uh, Dude, help me out with that. Then I've been using GoSec, and it's like not been it's. It has it's it has potential, but it hasn't been. We'll have to talk offline about that because I need some help with that. Because I need, I really do. Like it's it's it it could be better. It's got promise, and and, and that's the most important thing. So it has promise, but yeah, it could, well, it need to customize. At JP's house last month, and I was actually talking with him about that. Uh, you know, oh. so uh, Ken Ken Seth and I have a mutual friend, uh, John Poulin, and uh, he he works with with Ken currently. Um, and uh, I, I've crashed in his house a, a bunch of times, and we were talking about some of the go the go work that we do. But yeah, we can talk about that offline. So you said currently, he's going to work with me forever, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> Hands off my man! <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I don't know. He's um, yeah, he's. I'm glad he reached out to. Me. Oh yeah, you know what? He told me that you were you guys were uh, that he you stayed up there. That's pretty awesome. Like. Yeah, he's got a good setup, and now he he moved to even a nicer setup. So yeah, his house is really nice. His new house is nice. So I will have some pictures. There. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, I'm glad he talked to you because we do need to like uh, 
Gosec is, is it's got promise. It just, it's not, it's lacking. So, well, and we also work with Nico, as you know, uh, on a bunch of stuff for CodeQL and whatnot too. So, right. uh, and we're, we're part of the GitHub security program and all that sort of jazz. So there, there's certainly lots of stuff. Yeah. Nico popped in yesterday and he was like, we've got, it was so funny. It was so casual. He's like, oh yeah. Uh, by the way, there's some um, Chrome like critical vulnerabilities uh, that you just should update Chrome. And we're like, what? And then uh, I guess one of the, the guys on his team or the one of the people uh, actually, sorry, I don't know, just know the name. Um, one of the people I should say on, on, on Nico's team, uh, like had reported two of the vulnerabilities. So it's kind of cool. Cause, uh, for those who don't know, Semel, which is that team was acquired by GitHub and, uh, they've got their own bug bounty. They've got their own, uh, security research team. And it's pretty interesting to, to see what that security research, cause they're using Semel on these, um, products. And it's like cool to see the results of that. Cool. Sorry. I'm trying to catch everybody up. Who's listening. Who's whoever's left listening. <laughs> Who's like, yeah. what the hell is that guy talking about? Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Well, I, I mean, we've been going for an hour and 20, which is, of course, <laughs> right? Like, and we didn't even get through. I think we got through two of the topics that we wanted to, maybe three, right? Uh, it's pretty standard. So, yeah. yeah. Hence the reason you keep coming back on, Stefan, is we just have you know, a, a lot to talk about every single time. Yeah, the, the list never, never actually runs out. <laughs> no. One of the no, great right. minds in our field of this century <laughs> stefan <laughs> yeah but anyway like i've got i got stuff i gotta jump off to so uh let's we'll just call it for today i guess i yeah. mean is anything else stefan that you wanted to you know talk about right like advice or anything like that before we call it for today no i mean i i think it's interesting to be doing more threat modeling and, and i think we'll be seeing a lot more impact from that sort of stuff uh we we've been getting quite a few calls based off the kubernetes report and now off the votes threat model for folks who want more threat modeling so i'm happy to be doing that sort of stuff and, and brian glass is is helping me with that sort of stuff so it's 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 interesting and it's a, a fun space so yeah hey on that note dead serious if you have any um places you've seen where people um, have implemented threat modeling that they're like self-service threat modeling for at the engineering group, hit me up. Cause like, I definitely, that's, that's where, that's where the no, next a, iteration of where I'm going, it, trying it, to go with it that is. is at. And that's, and, and actually you're not the only organization, like the more, the more pushback that I get and the more training that I get asked about lately has been around threat modeling and about how do we get our developers to do that self-service and it's not out of the AppSec team or out of the security team because that's where it's like, it's the mini threat model that we do, right? Like whether it's kind of threat yeah. model, a, a short risk assessment, something that helps. Um, I, I mean, maybe we should talk about that next time. Yeah, we should. Week, cause, yeah, we, we should. Be Cause I actually do have that need that same need you're talking about. Cause I need, yeah. I need like uh, a, a even a shortened version of that. And yeah. so I was looking at um, what's their. I know you got to jump jump off, but uh, what was the? Um, is, it, is it Mozilla's rapid risk assessment? No, it was uh, Listo. Listo that I was I was trying to like model it off of from Seek. Um, okay. Yep. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I I, so. I use Mozilla's rapid risk assessment process very frequently with our customers. In fact, if you look at the Kubernetes assessment repository, you can see. I, I pasted the link in our private chat. But okay, uh, perfect. There, if you look at the Kubernetes assessment, I actually took all the notes from the rapid risk assessment meetings and all the like data dictionaries and all that jazz that we were talking about and, and added it to the repository. And those are open source as well. 
I, I like, it's not a full threat model. It's just a way of understanding certain threat scenarios and understanding CIA impact, uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability impact. But it's, it's relatively self-service. Developers can create documentation. They can create, uh, you know, things that they can iterate on. And I've used it very successfully with customers to like, they get a full threat model from me. And then from, from then on, um, you know, from then on they can use rapid risk assessments, you know, for other things. So. Yeah. yeah. No, that's super useful. I'm, I actually am going to be looking at that now today and I'll probably hit both of you up for questions because uh, yeah, this is like my big OKR is to, to make it more. Well, yeah. that, that's right. You, you work so, for Microsoft I'm, now. Got it. Yeah. yeah I, I tongue in cheek through in the OKR because it's funny, but I, I mean it like it's actually really, really important. Um, so, yeah. Uh, cool. It, it is. It, we, and, and there's a good reason and I, we don't have time to get into it, but there's a good reason to have engineers doing this themselves. So we can cover that another time, all the good reasons. But I, I but I brought up this one last question in case we wanted to answer it before we rolled out. I, I was going to say, Atanas, we can we can chat on on Twitter, but um, I, I do think very frequently if if your organization is pushing Kubernetes, um, you should avoid on-prem as much as possible unless you have a dedicated team to Kubernetes. I think Kubernetes is great for for self-service for developers and whatnot, but the the actual administration and risk profile of Kubernetes is non-trivial. And I think people very often overlook some of the nuances of deploying with Kubernetes that things like GKE and, and uh, you know, EKS and all those sorts of things uh, provide for you. And so if you want to do something locally with Minikube or, or whatever there, that that's fine. Uh, but you, you probably, if you're going to use Kubernetes, I, I do recommend using a hosted one as much as possible. And then we can yeah. nuance afterwards. So yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, my first question is, do you really need Kubernetes, right? Like, you know, that, that that's that's always where I go because, you know, I, people underestimate exactly what you're talking about, like how much effort it takes to run. Um, and then they're trying to deploy like within their data center or within, you know, they're not using EKS or whatever else and they just get killed, right? Mm -hmm. So they end up rolling back and spending all this money when they could have just, you know, you know, gone straight to Google or done it somewhere else and it would have worked, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think uh, Kubernetes has a place. Kubernetes provides you with a lot of things like developer self-service and, and all sorts of role-based access control. Uh, but it, it also, it, it, you know, if you don't have the team that can handle that sort of thing, it's extremely difficult to, like you can just as easily be opening up vulnerabilities in your application as, as closing them down by using Kubernetes. So, yeah. but yeah, was, I'm trying to answer that's that. Cool, that's quickly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a whole, yeah. like we can have another talk with with Bobby about Kubernetes, or I can come on about threat modeling. But uh, like those those are very Heck yeah big so. topics. Yeah, they are. So well, good. This is my this is my way to to get free consulting hours. To bring my friends on the podcast. Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> messed up. Myself and Bobby come on and talk about uh, about Kubernetes, and then like I can come on with Brian and talk about threat modeling. And there we go. Yep, exactly. That's actually genius. And I think we should, uh, Seth, let's make that happen. Yeah, we will. Serious. Cool. Wow. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Stefan, thank you. Of course. You know, Absolutely happy. Uh, as, as usual, I love having you on. And Send the bill to Seth doing. at Redpoint Security. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I scheduled myself for like two or three more episodes. So like, you know. Sweet. There you go. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, catch us all online. Catch us on Slack. And we'll see you all next week. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Later.